you as the individual need to consider yourself as the product. And so when you think of yourself as the product, then you need to pitch the product and market the product and sell the product, right? And so it helps you disassociate yourself from yourself as far as I'm now the I'm now the product that I'm selling, right? And it makes it a little easier for you to be like, okay, where do I need to put myself so that I get noticed? You're listening to The Career Diaries with Brianna Archery, where each week we laugh and learn with industry experts about the highs and lows of their careers. Email brie at careerdiariespodcast.com. That's B-R-I at careerdiariespodcast.com with your burning career questions to get them answered on the show. All right. Welcome, everyone, to the very first episode, actually, of the Career Diaries podcast. Today, I'm joined or rejoined because I've had you as a guest in the past on a previous podcast by Asha Arvindakshan. Welcome, Asha. Thank you, Bree. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show. As I said before, we chatted, what, it was October of 2022, you said? That's right. (laughs) Yeah, a while ago on my previous podcast, and you were the first person I thought of to have on this show. Before I get into all that, let me introduce you to everyone. Asha is a jack of all trades. She is VC partner, advisor, and most importantly, what we'll be talking about today, she is the best-selling author of the book Skills, The Common Denominator. And having you as my first guest on this show, The Career Diaries, is very apropos because Everything that you cover in your book covers what I want people to focus on when listening to this podcast, right? Where it's, you know, folks in their 20s and 30s face these battles of, am I in the right career? Or I know I'm in the right career, but how do I progress to the next stage? And your book, like point by point, covers all of those things. And so I really want to talk about your book, most of the show, but I want to start by talking about your background and how you got to where you are today. So Let's maybe just go all the way back to college. Like, where did you graduate from? And then what did you do right afterwards? Sure thing. First, I want to say thank you very much for having me as the first guest on your new podcast. It's truly an honor and a privilege to be here. I'm really proud of what you've accomplished and how you've been able to manage to create a podcast that really speaks not only to your interest, but to your audience's interest. So to take you all the way back, I attended college at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., And I studied business, specifically finance. I thought I was going to be an investment banker. However, my event planning internship that I really, really, really loved turned into my first full-time job, which was an operations manager at the same nonprofit where I had the internship. And I started that role during my second semester of my senior year. Okay, cool. So you actually got your first job out of college from an internship. I have several friends who had that happen. For them, do you think that it was like an option that was given to you and you were like, I need a job or was it more, more, I really enjoy this work and I want to continue doing it? I think it was a combination of both. And so if I think back to the fall semester of my senior year, it was, there was like a tech boom and bust that happened that year. And there weren't organizations coming to interview for on-campus jobs or on-campus recruiting. And so I remember I interviewed with Lehman Brothers. Thank goodness that didn't work out. And with the Census Bureau, which I was like, I think I'm too young to work for the government. And so (laughs) when the third option presented itself, which was taking a full-time role at an organization that I already loved working for, I had been there for 
two years at that point, I said, sure, I'll take it. I can start in January because I only have one class left um, to graduate. And so it was like out of necessity that I did it, but I really did enjoy the work. Okay, gotcha. And what did you do? How long were you there at that job? I stayed, once I joined full-time, another 14 or 15 months. Because at that point, as I mentioned, there had been this tech bust. We were funded by a lot of tech companies and we had sponsorships from organizations that work with tech companies. And so to have them decline sponsoring for another year, another two years after the bust was really hard. Like we couldn't make salary sometimes because of that. And so I was like, I'm too young to have this type of experience where we can't even pay salaries, we can't pay our vendors and having to have those really tough conversations. I need to go work in a company that has a more stable foundation, can create a more stable foundation for my career. And so I looked to join uh, a company that, but I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm not kidding. This the company and the sister company hired like one out of every four people in Washington, D.C. at the time. And so I was like, if I don't work for one of these two companies, like I'm doing something wrong. And so I joined the corporate executive board after that. Okay, cool. And what did you do there? There I joined an account management role. And so it was different from the event planning role, but similar in the sense that you're working backwards from a deadline, right? In event management, you're working backwards from the deadline of planning the event and you have to have a plan in place versus an account management. You're working from a contract renewal date. And you're working backwards to make sure that you're delivering value to the customer so that they renew. And so I picked it up really quickly because I saw the transferability of my skills in the work that I was doing. And I also thrived in it because we were working across different teams. And it was very similar to like how I was working like with different vendors and everything in my previous role. So I had a lot of transferable skills that helped me make that jump successfully. Okay. Yeah. Ties it right back to the book. And that is a way that my brain is not trained to work yet. Like I would never make the connection between those two roles and working back from a deadline as the transferable skill that connects them. I might say people skills, I might say organization, but that applies to a ton of roles, but that is like highly specific skill. Absolutely. And I think not get connected to the next role that was a lot of project management. And project management is the same thing. You organize things with dates, you have milestones, you have to meet them. Maybe it's a little more forward thinking versus backward planning. And so you stretch your brain in a different way, but you're still using those core skills over and over again. I know you're an operator like me, so it's making sense to you, you know, what I'm saying. But for folks that are listening, sometimes it it won't make sense until you're through the experience and you're looking back, right? Hindsight's 2020. And that's why I think it's important to recognize your skills as you go throughout your career and mm-hmm. keep an inventory so that you can be like, okay, am I using the skill again or am I developing a new one and adding to the list? Yeah. Okay. And so account management, so events, account management, and then what was after that? I would say, so I joined the, I joined, then took a government role. So then I wasn't oh, too yeah. young to join one anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's the threshold for that? Like mid twenties, maybe? Yeah, it was mid twenties. It was a very young mayor who was elected into office in Washington, DC. So it was like super exciting because he brought a lot of like new energy to the local government. He brought in a stellar cabinet. These people were rock stars in their fields from across the country, and and they chose to come to D.C. to support the great work that was being done. And I just felt swept up in that excitement, and I wanted to take that jump into public service. And so um, I had a role where it was a lot of project management up front related to strategy and performance management of the technology projects that we were running across the city, supporting education, healthcare, public safety, economic development, And then after a couple of years, 
because I had learned everything related to not only how the agency functions from a strategy and performance management perspective, and then how the city functions by all these different areas, I was a really strong candidate to be our chief of staff in the agency. And that was my favorite role. I loved being able to, again, work cross-functionally like I had done in the previous roles, bring everything together, liaise with the mayor's office, city council, our sister agencies, be able to talk about technology in a way that non-technologists could understand, and then take the ask from those non-technologists and go back to the technologists and see if we could do it. I got really proficient in that. And I think that's a skill in and of itself and something that's helped me thrive since then in my subsequent roles. Yeah. And I didn't know that about you. That's insanely impressive. So you were Thank chief you. of staff in your 20s? Yeah. Before right. I, the time I was 30, I was chief of staff of a government agency. You must have worked so many hours. I did. I used to call it two shifts and security yeah. guard would laugh because I'd be out in the day with meetings and then I'd come back at three, four o'clock to actually start the work at my desk. And that was the second shift. But I loved it. I loved every single minute of it. It was my favorite role. Yeah. Another transferable skill. Just be willing to work really freaking hard. <laughs> yes. And and you won't work the way that you work in your 20s. You will never work as hard as that again. Yeah. You know, I actually learned it because my managers in the previous company used to talk about it, how like the young people are the ones who work the hardest. And then I started to watch it myself. And, you know, you look through it. And so I think when you think about, especially for those of you in your 20s that are listening now, the hours that you're working you're going to get work the hardest. Make sure that, that you're putting in the value and the time in a place that you want to be in, a role that you want to be in, and that you are, you're getting everything out of it that you can. Because and again, it does pay off. Like, obviously, yeah. I don't advocate for wor- overworking yourself at, at something where you're not getting compensated fairly or what have you. But right. even when I was making pennies and I was working very hard, it did inevitably pay off. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for, for me, the payoff was referrals. So yeah. I got referred from somebody in one company, then hired me into the next company, you know, another company like 10 years later. Right. Yeah. And so that happened because they saw me work hard. They saw that I could deliver, that I could build the relationships. You probably have a great story also of how it paid off for you. Yeah, I think, yeah, right out of college, working on a customer success team and then like just creating my own role and community out of it. And that just required me to essentially work two jobs until they right. transitioned me into the role I actually wanted. And I just made it up in my head to start. And then we get this trial and error, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they didn't even give me, they did give me a little bit of a raise, but they were like, we're just going to change your title. And I was like, that's the career path I want. So sometimes you might not get like a raise when you're younger with the change, but it will move you into the career that you want, which I think is so important. And in your case, I mean, you you went into community at a time that was relatively a new function. Yeah, it was, was really exciting. I would say it was like a 10, 10 years old and not even that old because there was like maybe one book out there about it. And now right. something everyone talks about and it's still a newer frontier. But yeah, it's yeah, I don't work as hard as I did in my 20s. I will say that <laughs> smarter, not harder, smarter. I like that smarter, not harder. That's right. Yeah. So, OK, we need to talk about the book. Okay. And so fast forward to when you wrote the book or like where you were in your career when you wrote it and why you wrote it. Yep. So we are now, this is fall of 2020 when I decided I'm going to put pen to paper. And it was a combination of things. One, I had been delivering a presentation about how to use LinkedIn for your personal brand for about five years at that point, about once a year to different audiences. It always landed and I always knew I wanted to turn it into a book, just a matter of when. Mm -hmm. Then we get to 2020 
And we started the year, unfortunately, with 19% of the American population losing their jobs because companies restructured or completely shut down. And the people, folks that lost their jobs were going to have to make dramatic career pivots into something new. And I knew that I had strong stories of people who had done the same, including myself, that I could add into the book, along with the other content about LinkedIn and personal branding, to really help all these people that had lost their jobs. And so that's when I started to put pen to paper in fall of 2020, and 10 months later had published the book, which has helped people not only who lost their jobs in the pandemic, but those who chose to leave their jobs with the great resignation. Yeah, Those who have chose not to go to college, right? There are people who are just 3% of the population has chosen not to go to college every year for the last three years. And then all the folks that have been laid off in the last two years, over 400,000 people in tech alone. And so I continually have been able to find audiences who feel like the stories resonate with them because there are so many stories or so many reference points and examples that they can identify with or they want to identify with and they just continue to support the book. Yeah, such a timely a book to put out in 2020. And and you couldn't have even seen what came two years after that. With Absolutely, that's right. I haven't seen anything like it in my entire career. And I've been in the tech space for 12 years. Isn't that long? It's it's insane. And so yeah. a book like yours right now is so helpful. Even if you think you already know some of these things like networking and personal branding, like you hear these words and you're like, yeah, I get it. But to actually sit down and and think about these things and structure them in a book, I think is, and read that book is so helpful. Yeah, of course. So I want to sort of break down the book and kind of what it covers. So one thing you cover in the book is identifying the right industries for you. Mm-hmm. I know that was very difficult for me. I think for me, it was, I found my career because I got my first job out of college. And then I just tried a bunch of different things at my company. And then I found something I thought I was good at and I just ran with it. Did but you land it in tech felt- right after college? Yeah. See, okay. So then then within the tech company, you figured out you liked customer success and then community, and then you stayed with community. So that's great. You were lucky that you hit that upfront as far as company-wise. Yes. I got very lucky because I went to school in San Francisco. That's really, it was pure luck. Got it. So if we, I felt like it wasn't very strategic and it was clunky and a million other things that I think a lot of people can probably relate to with their early career. So I think if someone's looking at this and trying to be smart, even if they're at the beginning or in the middle or whatever, let's think about the beginning. So say I'm Sally and I graduated as a business major, which most people do from a mid-level state school. How would I begin to determine like which industries are right for me? All right. So first off, Sally, kudos for studying business in college, because even after you graduate, you will have lifelong access to the career services office and business schools tend to offer more services to students and alumni. So I think you set yourself up very well. I'm assuming you probably had some internships during college, like what Bree and I talked about earlier in the show. And those internships should have helped you explore different industries, different work environments, different working styles. And so all those experiences are so critical to help you narrow down what's right for you. And so you really need to reflect on those experiences. And then that should help you decide. But if you're starting from scratch, let's say you know, you're a dedicated student those four years with your academics and student life, you may want to try a different number of ways to figure out what's right for you. First off, I think consider the region you're going to be in. Where do you want to work and what industries are demand in that location? So for example, 
Re mentioned she was in San Francisco. She landed in technology. That makes sense. I was in Washington, D.C. I landed in nonprofits and government. That makes sense for that region. Maybe you want to work in media and entertainment. You have two places to pick from, L.A. and New York. So you could really then narrow your search down based on the industry that you want to work in and where you want to be to better find chances of a role that fits your needs. So we talked about region. Let's talk about next about organizations. So once you've narrowed down like the industry and then the cities, you can then look at who are the top companies that are hiring in that region in those particular industries that you selected. So let's say we're still sticking with media and entertainment. You could decide, do you want to work for like a big established traditional employer like an NBC Universal that owns multiple media outlets? Or do you want to go work for like a startup like Tubi, which is getting, you know, its content platform off the ground? And so there's a wide variety there. And so you want to research and see like, but who's actually hiring? Who has the roles? And then you want to determine what's the role that fits your skills. So this is where you start to think about your strengths, the strengths, how they appeared in an academic setting, an extracurricular setting, how you're like with with the projects that you really enjoy, and what's going to help you get in the door with interviews, right? So you want to be able to think about the role, think about the skills, and then look at those job descriptions to really understand, do I want to be working in marketing, which involves a lot more writing, for example, or would I rather be in like finance or accounting, which is more quantitative heavy? And so you can start to eliminate ones that you don't know you definitely don't want to do and then consider what's left. And then the last piece that I think is critical to this is your network. As you start to get more specific about your job search, you have the region, you have the industry, you have the organizations, you start to identify specific roles. You need to articulate that to others to help you identify companies or hiring managers and their networks that are potentially your future employer and that they could refer you to. And so just know that once you start to tell people that you're searching, and even though you're being specific on what you're looking for, people are going to have their own ideas about your skills. And they're going to say, why don't you consider this role that you haven't considered previously? So just realize you need to keep an open mind on the job search. You may be pleasantly surprised at what somebody presents to you. Yeah, really well said. And I love the kind of zoomed out approach you took where think about the region and then go into the industry. And then because, yeah, you definitely need to keep an open mind post-college, especially be willing to move if, you know, if you're open to that, et cetera, or if you even have those resources, some people don't, right? Right. Um, and so if you know, like, okay, region's not an option, then maybe I need to look for hybrid or or remote roles from where I am in these industries, right? But I think it it can be really overwhelming if you're starting from scratch. And so anything yeah. to just cut, and eliminate and shorten the list will help you thrive in the search. Yeah. And there's so many titles out there, job titles. They're so ambiguous and strange that you can just get one keyword in there. So helpful, right? Like media something. Right. Yeah. Uh, Not just analyst or associate, but media analyst, media associate, right? That makes a huge difference. Yeah. 100%. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.
I want to talk about the next thing you cover in your book, which is building a personal brand. And it's always something that makes me roll my eyes. I just feel like it's sort of self-aggrandizing to be like, oh, I have a personal brand. But then you really think about it. You've actually done a great job, Asha, of building a personal brand. It doesn't come across as any of those negative things I just said. So how do you recommend folks go about that? Yep. So I actually will, in my introduction, I quote the book, The Startup of You by Reid Hoffman. And he talks about like you as an individual need to consider yourself as the product. And so when you think of yourself as the product, then you need to pitch the product and market the product and sell the product, right? And so it helps you disassociate yourself from yourself as far as I'm now the I'm now the product that I'm selling, right? And it makes it a little easier for you to be like, okay, where do I need to put myself so that I get noticed? And so when you're building a brand, what I try to emphasize is you have to do it in a way that's authentic to who you are. And so I know for myself, it took me a little bit just to get comfortable talking about myself. It's something that doesn't come easy to women, right? Especially women of color. And so crafting an elevator pitch, being able to be very specific in my talk track took a lot of practice. And it's something that I became very intentional about during my job search in 2013. And what I used to do was I would write my pitch at home and I would practice it at home. And then I would go to career fairs. And I'd walk up to recruiters and practice my pitch because that's what they're there to listen to, actually. <laughs> they're yeah. there to hear about you. And then I would get you know feedback right away, right? So I could go iterate and then go to the next table. And so imagine walking down just you know, one aisle of a career fair. You're getting 10 to 15 people to give you feedback and, and they're happy to do so. And so that's that's one way that where you can practice that also. And I, I know a lot of career fairs are virtual now, but you can still have these interactions with recruiters and get that type of feedback. And just remember, as you are going through your career, your personal brand is going to change and you can rebrand, right? Brianna talked about how she was in customer success and then she went into community. That involves a rebrand, especially if she wanted to grow her presence in the community space. I would told you I was in the nonprofit and then I was in the government and now I'm in the private sector. And so I changed my brand with each one of those pivots, especially during the job search phase, so that I could be attractive to the recruiters and the hiring managers in the area that I wanted to go to. And remember that you control the narrative. That's the most important thing. Yeah, really well said. And I'm with you on that. What's the first step you think someone should take if they want to build their personal brand? I think writing down your pitch is honestly the most important thing. Who you are, what you know, what you want to do, and you know, what you're looking for help with is honestly like just putting that on paper helps you realize what's important, what's not important. Because you may start with the kitchen sink. And then when you realize you only have 30 seconds to ask someone for help, then you start to prioritize. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. such and an important even, yeah. exercise. So true. And I feel like I'm picturing even if you don't want to go to a career fair or what have you, maybe just get five of your friends together and be like, we're all just going to do this and critique each other. There's value in that too, right? hundred percent, right? You just want, you just want FaceTime with someone to get that real-time feedback and make the adjustments. And you want to make sure you're delivering it authentically, right? Because the way you write may not be how you speak. And so you want to adjust the language. Yeah. And it is that delivering it authentically and getting comfortable with it is key. It's like why you should always be interviewing for jobs because it is like a skill to do that pitch. The first time you do it after a long time, you're not great at it and you probably won't get that job. And then the fifth or sixth or whatever time you get way better at it. Absolutely. hundred percent. Having gone through a job search earlier this year, I experienced that myself getting yeah. back into interviews. And I was like, oh, this is actually really hard. And I had to script out what I wanted to say because I was trying to summarize 
20 years of experience in two, three minutes. And and I was able to do it, but it took practice. And it took me like writing it down and editing it and sharing it with somebody else for feedback to make sure that I had the really important points in there. And every time I read that three-minute pitch at the start of an interview, when they asked the question, tell me about yourself, they were always impressed because I managed to summarize 20 years in three minutes. I covered all the really important points. I covered what I learned. I covered why I made the transitions, right? I felt like they felt like their questions were answered before they could even ask them, right? But again, it takes practice. You have to invest time in it. Yeah. So I want to talk about networking, which you also covered in your book, which is also something that I don't enjoy. When I enjoy it, I do, but you never know if you're going to, right? Like That's 100% right. You go to something and it's either stunted conversations and exhausting and draining, or you can run into that magical moment where it's actually really valuable. The lesson there being like, you have to keep doing it to have those good moments in networking. And it is extremely important. I know it's important, but for all those out there like me who were like, "Ugh, it's not my favorite thing to do. What are some ways you suggest they flex that muscle or continue to so that they don't get terrible at it like most of us did during the pandemic? <laughs> Absolutely. So I think there are a couple of different ways to answer this. So one is in, in the book, I have eight different networking techniques. So you can figure out which one's the right one for you. They range from like, you know, attending an event with a speaker. And I'll, I'll talk a little more about that in a few minutes to listening to a podcast and then reaching out to the person who's presenting, right? So then you, you feel like you you learned something about them and then you can reach out with a question or an in- inquiry. Going to a meetup where you're going to meet people who are all there for a very particular reason. And so there you have something in common and it's easier to start a conversation. And so, the, and there are a few more examples of different ways to network in that section also. But going back to the one about events with speakers, I hate going to networking events where it's just like open free for all and you don't know who's in the room. I don't do those. I just, I opted out of that like 10 years ago. Okay, and so I will go only if the attendee list is published and I can research who's going to be in the room and make a list of people, a little list of who I want to talk to. And when I get to the event, I will ask the person who organized it. Typically they're the, the person who's checking you in. Are these people here yet? Or will you let me know when they've arrived? And then when I get into the room, I'm looking for those particular people. So I'm like an agenda. If once I meet those people, I'm out. The same thing when there's an event with speakers. I research the speakers that are presenting. I make sure I write down questions I want to ask them. If it's possible, ask them questions while they're speaking or questions I'm going to ask them afterwards. And then I ask them for their business card. And 100% of the time, they will give it to you. And mm-hmm. so I think we live in this world where people like are eager to be connected Right. And so you just need to decide who do you want to have in your community and which communities you want to join that are existing or which ones that that you want to build new. Right. And you're the expert on community. So you can help us there in explaining that and how to do that. But again, I want to come back to the word authenticity. You want to cultivate your networks in an authentic manner. You want to be comfortable with your outreach to the people you're contacting, the frequency you're doing that. And you want to make sure you stay on people's radars after you meet them. Because that when, when you need to ask a favor, whether that's a referral for a job, a recommendation, or something else, the door is open because you've stayed in touch and you've cultivated your network. Yeah, really well said. And I like the approach you take. And you said you just opted out of those free for all events because yes. those are where you run into that problem where you're like, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to talk to? And is it useful right. for either of us to be talking to each other, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's the thing. And I, I don't have a problem going to events by myself. 
But if I'm going, yeah. if I'm going by myself, I want to know who I'm going to meet in the room. And so having that attendee list is really important. And if the attendee list isn't available and I really need to go to the event for whatever reason, I'll ask when I'm checking in, who's here, right? Yeah. This is like what I'm into. Can you connect me with one or two people who are interesting in the room, right? Because the event organizer wants you to have a good time. And so they will yeah. do that for you. That's really well said. And that's what I always do as a community manager. I'm always right. like going up to people and being like, you should talk to this person and this person yes. should talk to this person. And so if you find someone like me in the room, I'm always going to send you the right direction. So that's go. great advice for networking. And then the final question I want to ask you about your book, and then we're going to go into listener questions. So if you are listening and you have a listener question that you want to submit to a future guest, our next guest will be Cambria Steele. She was an account manager at Twitter, now X, and now is an account manager at Snapchat. So she'll be on our next episode. So if anyone has any questions for Cambria, just email Bree at careerdiariespodcast.com. That's B-R-I at careerdiariespodcast.com. So final question about your book. You talk about keeping an eye on today's top transferable skills. So how should people go about that today? What are some of the skills today that people should look at? Sure. So, so the listeners understand in the book, I cover 42 transferable skills that I believe are needed in today's market. And of those skills, I find the top one that I keep highlighting over and over again is storytelling. And I think those of you that are listening to us today have heard Brie and I share a bunch of stories and hopefully they resonated with you. And I think that ability to tell stories is so important, especially if you're in an active job search looking for that next gig, you need to be able to articulate what you have done, what you want to do, where you want to go, and the skills that you bring to the table. And so if you're a career pivoter or a job seeker, you just want to make sure that you're telling your journey in a really interesting way that makes sense to the listener, not to you. To the listener. Okay. And yeah. that takes practice. Really well said. And some people are naturally good storytellers and some aren't. And we've all been to those family gatherings where that aunt will corner you and tell you a story that takes forever and really wasn't that important about like how she got burned on her finger in like 1999, you know? So <laughs> don't be that aunt. I'll, <laughs> I'll say this I interviewed. 33 people for my book. They were all bad storytellers. It was, <laughs> this, is, this, this is how a 30 minute conversation would go. They would take me through their background for 25 minutes. And then at minute 25, they'd have that aha moment of, oh, wait, I've been using my transferable skills from day one. And then started to connect the dots 33 <laughs> times in a row. And that's when I realized, wow, we are really bad storytellers. I include myself in that number. So yeah. thanks, practice, please practice. Well, your practice is paying off because all your stories are interesting to me. Okay. So I want to move on to listener questions. So I emailed some folks and said, Hey, Asha's coming on. This is her book. What are some of the questions you have from her? Nice. And this is what we got back. So Helen from LA wants to know, I was let go this year during the tech layoffs, and I've been mainly relying on my network to secure interviews. I feel like cold applying can be a massive waste of time. Do you see the value in it? So that's question one. And if so, how do you suggest I suss out the valuable positions from the less relevant ones? Great. So Helen, first off, I'm sorry to hear that you were laid off. I was also laid off earlier last year, and I did a mix of things to secure interviews and ultimately job offers. I applied to roles online 
and I accepted requests to interview from recruiters reaching out to me based on my LinkedIn profile. And so I really think cold applying can work if you read the job description and believe you're a close match to what they're looking for. And this isn't some like spray and pray approach where you're like, I'm applying to 500 job postings and not getting a response. This is a targeted effort focused on job descriptions that align to your background and skill set and what you can bring to that company. And so if you want technology to help you here in sussing out some of these job descriptions, both LinkedIn and Otta, O-T-T-A, are both using technical algorithms to surface relevant roles for you. So you just have to train them to do that. And so with LinkedIn, that involves using their job board, searching on there, using the open to work feature, and that'll automatically create some search results. And it gets smarter over time. And when I think about how smart it is today compared to where it was five years ago in my last search, I want to say within three weeks, it knew exactly what I was looking for and it was surfacing those type of roles. Otta, on the other hand, uses more like a, a quiz to figure out your interest as far as what we were talking about earlier. Where do you want to work? What roles do you want to work in? What technologies do you want to use? Really selective questions. And based on that, it then services job descriptions for you. And as you go through and you like swipe right on ones that you want to apply to, or you skip over the ones that you don't, it learns that. And so I know, for example, I was skipping B2C roles. And it said after a few weeks, hey, we've noticed you've been skipping all the B2C roles. Should we stop showing them to you? And I was like, actually, no, I want to see them just in case. One looks interesting. I'm not interested in that right now. And so it's really smart. And so I hope, Helen, that helps you. Just take a look to see what's out there and apply to roles that interest you. Good luck. Good luck, Helen. We have got your back. And if anything in either of my networks, or I'm sure Asha's looks interesting, reach out to us. We're happy to help. Absolutely. Okay. Christina from Austin says, I'm considering getting out of marketing and moving into sales. There may be opportunities internally at my current company, but I'm worried that if I voice the desire to my manager, she won't be pleased. Any suggestions on how to navigate this? Yep. So Christina, this is a big jump to go into a role with a quota. And so I just want to make sure that you know what you're getting into by talking to existing people who you're friendly with either in your company or even outside your company to understand the different facets of being a salesperson, like pipeline generation ownership, forecasting, how the compensation plans are structured so that you can decide when's a time to make the switch and it's the right thing for you and there's an open role, then you tell your manager. And so that way you'll have more conviction and be less likely to be talked out of it because that's the first thing your manager is going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you also may want to proactively come up with a transition document of the current work that you're doing and the initiatives that you have uh, on your plate and put a timeline of what that transition period looks like so that your manager can be reassured that you're not just jumping ship and abandoning them and the team, but you like are being really thoughtful about what it's like to switch teams and to switch roles. But know that you shouldn't apply to the role without telling your manager because you don't want HR to see that you've applied and then go and tell your manager first and create a very awkward situation. So I hope this works out for you. Best of luck. Okay. Do you think there, because of the state of the industry right now, that telling your manager this would contribute to you losing a job? No, I think uh, right now with all the layoffs that are going to happen, teams are very lean right now and managers cannot afford to lose the resources that they have on their teams because of the leanness. I think I just saw on LinkedIn this morning or this week 
that uh, people quitting is at an all-time low. So we really have to do with what we have. And so you want to make sure that you're just not creating an awkward situation with your manager, especially if you're going to continue to work with that team in your next role. Right. Or if you don't get the job, then you continue to work with the team. That also could happen. Yes. Not that that will happen to you, Christina. I'm sure you will get this job. Okay. Final question is from Ashley from New York City. I recently decided to completely pivot into graphic design. I completed a certification and have been building out my portfolio with contract work, but I'd love a full-time position. Any ideas on how I can present myself in a way that stands out? Great. I think Ashley, first off, congrats on making a career pivot. I hope that you are taking the opportunity to approach the folks that you've been working on these contracts with about full-time roles, maybe either in their organization or in their network, right? Because they sound like as hiring managers, they would have these networks that could help you. And that is a good example of how you stay on someone's radar because those folks that hired you previously are excellent sources of referrals, right? So kind of reiterating what we said earlier. And then make sure you're treating your LinkedIn profile as a digital portfolio. And you can do that by using the rich media features that are available in the experience section. And there's a section dedicated, it's called featured, where you can show your work off and that can highlight your graphic design work. And that way recruiters who land on your profile can see your work right away and reach out to you. So that's again, getting LinkedIn to work for you. Another option is that when you take on future contract gigs, you can let them know upfront that you're interested in full-time roles in the firm and that you would like to be considered for those. You could even try to write that as a clause in your contract, right? So that way it's like very upfront, like you want to be able to convert, for example, if the contract role goes to a full-time role and not have to go through the hoopla of interviews and applying. And my other advice would be check out some LinkedIn profiles of full-time graphic designers and see how they were able to make the switch. Did they go from a part-time role to a full-time role in the same organization or did they come in as a full-time employee and maybe you could figure out how they got there? And I think that can help you understand how different companies consider a graphic design role. Because I'm guessing larger enterprise companies will have full-time graphic designers while smaller companies go with contract. And so I hope that will help you narrow down the companies that you want to focus on so that for a full-time role and then you know fine-tune your search that way. So good luck. You're a freaking wealth of knowledge, Asha. I could talk to you all day, but I won't thank you on any longer. So tell people where they can get your book. Oh, the book is available on Amazon. It's available in all formats, ebook, paperback, hardcover, and audiobook recorded by yours truly. And you can find me online at Twitter and Instagram at DC Asha. All right, you guys. Well, thank you so much, Asha. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Let's try and talk sooner than a year. And I hope to talk to you soon. And thanks again for coming on the show. Definitely. Thanks again for having me. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Career Diaries podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review to help get the word out about the show. Email brie at careerdiariespodcast.com with your burning career questions to get them answered on the podcast. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss another conversation.